What an exciting yet predictable end to this complex space saga. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of Dune by Frank Herbert, published in 1965. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll spend a month reading a book, hopefully together. I'll split the book into two equal halves. On the second Friday of the month, I'll share my thoughts and yours on the first half of the book, maybe make a few predictions. And when we finish reading the book, I'll publish part two of the podcast in a similar vein. That'll be on the last Friday of the month. We'll decide whether it's a book we'd recommend to a friend or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can either comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Maybe you have thoughts you want to express about the book that I've missed or there's something in the podcast you agree with or really disagree with, I'd love to share your experiences in the next episode. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of Dune from page 234, and that's the chapter that begins, Muad Dib could indeed see the future. Jessica and Paul are rescued by Duncan Idaho, who's the master of arms, and Kynes, who's the arachis ecologist or planetologist. And they go to a Fremen siege, which is like a stronghold. They pilot a thopter, which is like a flying helicopter, and survive a really bad sandstorm. Sardaka, who are the emperor's battle troops, storm the siege and kill Duncan Idaho. But Jessica and Paul manage to escape. And then we have a scene with the Baron. Eakin Nefford, who is the guard captain, incorrectly says that Jessica and Paul are dead, which infuriates the Baron. He says that the Kynes, the Imperial Planetologist, double-crossed the Harkonnens. He says, quote, kill him, because he doesn't want any Imperial entanglement. Quote, my Lord Kynes is the Imperial Planetologist. His Majesty's own serve, and he doesn't finish his sentence, make it look like an accident then, says the Baron. Thufar Hawat is also in custody of the Harkonnens. Now remember, Thufar Hawat was the master of assassins with House Atreides, but he's been employed now by the Baron. The Baron plans to treat Hawat well and make him continue to believe that Jessica was the betrayer. Quote, and this is the Baron speaking, Be quiet. I wish Howard treated kindly. He must be told nothing of the late Dr. Ewer, his true betrayer. Let it be said that Dr. Ewer died defending his duke. In a way, this may even be true. We will instead feed his suspicions against the Lady Jessica. He carries on. The way to control and direct a mentor, Nefford, is through his information. False information, false results. More of this cloak and dagger that I mentioned in the first podcast. The Baron wants Howat as his replacement mentor, and the Baron will control Howat by, quote, and this is Baron talking to Nefford, Howat will be given both food and drink, the Baron said, treated with kindness, with sympathy. In his water, you will administer the residual poison developed by the late Peter de Reed, and you will see that the antidote becomes a regular part of Howat's diet from this point on, unless I say otherwise. Ultimately, the Baron wants a Harkonnen on the throne. Quote, the Baron could see the path ahead of him. One day a Harkonnen would be emperor, not himself, evil Baron Harkonnen. Rabban, the Baron's nephew, warns of the Fremen, but the Baron ignores his advice. Then we go into the scene with Paul and Jessica. 
they ride out an awesome storm. They get trapped in sand and manage to build a tent. And Jessica thinks Paul needs more lessons to control his mind. I'm thinking he saved their life. She's quite a pushy mum, I'd say. And then we have a scene with Gurney Halleck, who's the troubadour of the Trades. Halleck, who has been rescued by Stavan Twek, who's Esmar Tech's son. Esmar was killed in the coup, possibly by, quote, a traitor in your, i.e. the Atreides people. And we learn that Rabban killed Gurney's family and gave him the scar on his face. He chooses to side with the smuggler rather than the Fremen. And then we have Paul and Jessica in the desert. Paul buries a thumper to attract a worm. Then we have a scary depiction of these worms. Quote, its mouth was some 80 metres in diameter, crystal teeth with the curved shape of crisp knives glinting around the rim, the bellows breath of cinnamon, subtle aldehydes, acids. The worm blotted out the moonlight as it brushed the rocks above them. A shower of small stones and sand cascaded into the narrow hiding place. Paul crowded his mother farther back. Cinnamon. The smell of it flooded across him. And then they're attacked by these wild Fremen who want to kill them for their bodily water. That's not very nice, is it? And then we go on to this section with Leet Kynes, who's the planetologist. He's actually roaming around Arrakis without a still suit. Crazy fool. Quote, the Harkonnen troopers had left him here without water or still suit, thinking a worm would get him if the desert didn't. They had thought it amusing to leave him alive to die by inches at the impersonal hands of his planet. I'm beginning to really loathe these Harkonnens. Rather touchingly, in his delirious stupor, Leek Kynes' father gives him some survival advice from beyond the grave. It's a really great characterisation of this father-son relationship. Quote, Vegetation and animal changes will be determined at first by the raw physical forces we manipulate. As they establish themselves, though, our changes will become controlling influences in their own right, and we will have to deal with them too. Keep in mind, though, that we need control only 3% of the energy surface, only 3% to tip the entire structure over into our self-sustaining system. Why aren't you helping me? Kynes wondered. Always the same. When I need you most, you fail me. Again, the father is looking at that bigger picture and not focusing on the singular entity that is his son. Ultimately, a spice pocket kills him. He is killed by his own planet. Then we have a scene with Paul and Jessica. One of the Fremen accosting Paul and Jessica is Stilgar, who is the leader of a Fremen steech. Jessica shows her worth by fighting Stilgar and they accept her as part of their group. She has the weirding way or witchcraft. And Khani, who is the daughter of Leet, appears to Paul. So here is the love interest, I'm guessing. They get in with Stilgar and his Fremen and they go to a stitch called Tabr, T-A-B-R, which is Stilgar's stitch. And so then we have a whole section in Siege Tabra. Jessica asks whether by beating Stilgar, she's compromised his leadership. Quote, Have I compromised your leadership by besting you, Stilgar? She asked. You did not call me out, he said. It's important that a leader keep the respect of his troops, she said. 
isn't a one of those sound lice I cannot handle, Stilgar said. When you bested me, you bested us all. Now they hope to learn from you, the weirding way, and some are curious to see if you intend to call me out. She weighed the implications. By besting you in former battle? He nodded. I'd advise you against this because they'd not follow you. You're not of the sand. Stilgar goes on to explain how he bribes the guild with spice. Quote, we bribe the guild with a monstrous payment in spice to keep our skies clear of satellites and such that none may spy what we do to the face of Arrakis. We change it slowly but with certainty to make it fit for human life. Our generation will not see it, nor our children, nor our children's children, nor the grandchildren of their children, but it will come. He stared with veiled eyes out over the basin. Open water and tall green plants and people walking freely without still suits. So that's the dream of this leap kind, Jessica thought. Jessica becomes the reverend mother of the Stich Tabra. And Shani, C-H-A-N-I, gives Paul a spice and he has a bit of a trip Quote, and what he saw was a time nexus within this cave, a boiling of possibilities focused here, where in the most minute action, the wink of an eye, a careless word, a misplaced grain of sand, moved a gigantic lever across the known universe. He saw violence with the outcomes subject to so many variables that his slightest movement created vast shiftings in the pattern. The vision made him want to freeze into immobility, but this too was action with its consequences. The countless consequences, lines fanned out from this cave, and along most of these consequence lines, he saw his own dead body with blood flowing from a gaping knife wound. Oh dear. Continuing the Siege Tabra section, Jamis challenges Paul to a duel. Now, Jamis is one of the people who discovered Paul and Jessica out in the wilds along with Stilgar. Paul wins and is named Paul Muad-Dib, after a sand mouse. And Stilgar, their leader, says, quote, Muad'Dib is wise in the ways of the desert. Muad'Dib creates his own water. Muad'Dib hides from the sun and travels in the cool night. Muad'Dib is fruitful and multiplies over the land. Muad'Dib we call instructor of boys. That is a powerful base on which to build your life. Paul Muad'Dib. So I've written in the margin here, Paul, it seems, is being catapulted into this authority position. The prophecy is coming true. And the fight with Jamis is one of the most exciting fights I've ever read. We go on to the funeral ceremony of Jamis, and it's a very ritualised funeral. Paul is offered Jamis's, quote, water. He sheds tears for Jamis, and Jessica realises the terrible inhibitions of shedding tears. They're led to a huge underwater pool where the Fremen are stockpiling water. And Paul thinks, quote, My mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. And then we get a new chapter. So now we're on Giedi Prime, which is the home of the Harkonnens. Fade Rautha offers to kill a slave gladiator for Lady Fenring, but she refuses him. And basically, I think he fancies her and she has Bene Gessery training. The Count and Lady Fenrig were the original occupants of Arrakis. The Baron called the Fenrigs, quote, ambassador to the smugglers, back in part one. Count Fenrig asks to speak privately to the Baron, and the Baron thinks, quote, let us see now how the Emperor's errand boy gets across whatever message he carries without ever being so crass as to speak it right out. He also dislikes... Bene Gessery very much. 
And then the Baron thinks about Lady Fenrig and the fact that she's a Bene Gesserie. He dislikes them intensely. Quote, the Baron noted how all conversation among the houses minor there stopped at her approach, how the eyes followed her. Bene Gesserie, the Baron thought. The universe would be better rid of them all. A duel is then set up and fate to make Fowd Raether look powerful. Lady Fenrig believes Fowd Raether has the bloodline the Reverend Mother says should be preserved and she plans to have his baby. And then we go back to Paul. Paul realises that Leet is the planetologist kinds and that he is dead and he reflects that Shani too then has lost a father. Paul who's also called Yusal by the Fremen, is offered to Jarmus's wife. She can be, quote, woman or, quote, servant. Paul chooses servant, and he must care for her two young boys. Then there's a ceremony for Jessica to become the next reverend mother of the tribe, but she must drink a strange liquid that could possibly be poison. Quote, Jessica felt herself torn between duty to her unborn child and duty to Paul. For Paul, she knew she should take that spout and drink of the sack's contents. But as she bent to the proffered spout, her senses told her its peril. It gives her a drug-induced trip full of weird insights. Paul also drinks the drug and has a trip. And Shani and he cement their relationship. And then we go on to book three. The Baron this is two years later, knows that Fadrath tried to assassinate him, but he lets him live and asks Howat to watch him. And Fadrath decides to wait and see what the Baron's plans for the Emperor are. The Baron suspects the prison planet of Seleucus Secundus is a training ground for the Sardica, which is the Emperor's elite fighting force. Howat reveals his suspicion that Leto was training an elite Fremen fighting force on Arrakis, and this is why the Emperor ordered the destruction of House Atreides. Paul has some visions of the past and the future. He has a son called Leto II with Shani and a sister called Alia, who his mother has given birth to. Paul waits to ride a sandworm to prove himself to the Fremen. He's treated as a political and religious leader. Jessica muses on how advanced her two-year-old daughter Alia is and one of Stilgar's wives rush in to say, quote, Yusul, that's Paul, meets the make of his test. It is today. The young men say he cannot fail. He will be a sand rider by nightfall. The young men are banding for Erasia. They will raid in the north and meet Yusul there. They say they will raise the cry then. They say they will force him to call out Stilgar and assume command of the tribes. I'm assuming Erasia is like a feast or a party. There's an index at the back with all the words. Erasia is a semi-piratical guerrilla raid. So my prediction is Paul is going to lead all the Fremen. Oh, actually, the blurb already gave away that spoiler. Don't read the blurb. Paul successfully rides the worm, proving himself to the Fremen. He also has trained Fadaikin, who are a Fremen death squad. He and Stilgar find some smugglers and decide to make examples of them. The smugglers include Gurney Halleck, who still believes Jessica betrayed Paul, not Ewer. And Paul uncovers some Sardaukar fighters trying to assassinate him, but he overcomes them. He makes Stilgar see him as the rightful leader of the Fremen without bloodshed. Paul then discovers that Raban, who's the Harkonnen ruler of Arrakis, has been cut off by Baron Harkonnen. 
Quote, and this is Paul speaking, this was taken from a Harkonnen courier. Its authenticity is beyond question. It is addressed to Rabban. It tells him that his request for new troops is denied, that his spice harvest is far below quota, that he must wring more spice from Arrakis with the people he has. And so they're ready for battle now. Stilgar submits to Paul without bloodshed, as I said. Paul says that Stilgar is, quote, wise and strong because he governs this troop by his own intelligence and not just by rules. Do you think me stupid? Do you think I'll cut off my right arm and leave it bloody on the floor of this cavern just to provide you with a circus? Gurney goes to kill Jessica, thinking that she's the traitor, only to be stopped by Paul, who explains it was Ewa. And when Gurney asks Paul to kill him, he refuses. This is Gurney talking, quote, Put your knife right here in my breast. I say kill me and have done with it. I've besmirched my name. I've betrayed my own duke, the finest. Close that robe and stop acting like a fool, Paul said. I've had enough foolishness for one day. Paul has a bit of a drug overdose and Shani is sent for. And Paul believes he can balance the two main forces, which is the feminine and the masculine. He spies legions of Sardaukar sent to fight through a telescope and then Paul has a premonition that his son and sister Alia are dead. Their plan is to shuttle the Sardaukar ships so that the Fremen can attack the Emperor and his forces. Paul hears of a raid on the Siege Tabra. His son is dead and Alia is captured. The Baron and the Emperor meet. The Emperor explains that the Fremen are much stronger and highly populated. Alia has been captured by the Emperor and says, remember she's very young, she's only like three years old. She says, quote, I allowed myself to be captured. I did not want to face my brother and have to tell him that his son had been killed. And the Emperor tells the Baron, quote, you say you don't know about the activity we found, nor the fighting qualities of these superb people. The emperor lifted himself half off this throne. What do you take me for, Baron? The Baron took two backward steps, thinking it was Rabban. He has done this to me. Rabban has. And this fake dispute with Duke Leto, the emperor purred, sinking into his throne. How beautifully you manoeuvred it. So the emperor is playing a very clever game. Alia kills the Baron, and she mentions that she is, quote, sorry, Grandfather. The Emperor says that the only attacking force they have left is treachery and calls for Count Fenrig. Paul, Gurney Halleck and Stilgar go to Arakeen, to the Governor's Mansion, which has been beautifully renovated by Rabin. He senses that Alia may be dead, and they discover Baron Harkonnen's body. They also find a living Sardaukar officer, quote, he seemed too submissive to Paul, but then the Sardaukar had never been prepared for such happenings as this day. They'd never known anything but victory, which Paul realised could be a weakness in itself. He put that thought aside for later consideration in his own training programme. It's an interesting comment there on the idea of failure and how it should be prepared for. The Emperor appears. Howard's near death was supposed to kill Paul, but he doesn't. And Paul uses his control of spice to force the guild forces to ensure the Landsraad forces leave. And Paul tells the Reverend Mother he refuses to be the cause of a jihad. And Gurney Halak pleads with Paul for revenge against Harkonnen. He wants to be allowed to kill Fade Rautha. And Paul reflects on the inability of a single person to truly lead a population in a certain direction. 
quote, and Paul saw how futile were any efforts of his to change any smallest bit of this. He had thought to oppose the jihad within himself, but the jihad would be. His legions would rage out from Arrakis even without him. They needed only the legend he already had become. He had shown them the way, given them mastery, even over the guild, which must have the spies to exist. So it's an interesting comment there. The will of a population is too strong. Personally, I disagree with this point of view. Perhaps I am being naive, but inspirational leaders can motivate and change the course of history that a population takes. Or is this Paul deceiving himself? What do you think? I'd be interested in your thoughts. Paul defeats Fade Rautha and the emperor asks Fenrig to finish Paul, but he refuses. And then Paul displays his power over the emperor and plans how he will rule over the system, sending the emperor to the prison planet Seleucus Secundus to rule over. Paul will marry the emperor's daughter, Irilan, and Shani, although a concubine, will remain his true love. So we've got this quite heavy patriarchal ending to a very long novel. So, there the novel ends. Would I recommend it? Well, I would recommend it to someone interested in an alternative future novel, obviously sci-fi. It's got some very interesting ecological themes. Maybe I'd recommend it to someone who's interested in this kind of cloak-and-dagger politics and all the manipulations that go into it. It reminded me a lot of Game of Thrones, if you've ever read that. Very manipulative power play going on. Personally, I would only really recommend it to someone who had quite a keen love of sci-fi. But then again, they've probably already read it if they do, I'd imagine. There's some very interesting ideas that were continued through the second half. The value of water. Listen to this. This is about the value of water on Caladan, which is where Jessica's really wants to go back, where it's basically like an Earth planet, compared to Arrakis, this desert planet. And this is Jessica thinking... Quote, she heard Paul pulling at his still suit tube, sipped her own reclaimed water. It tasted brackish and she remembered the waters of Caladan, a tall fountain enclosing a curve of sky, such a richness of moisture that it hadn't been noticed for itself, only for its shape or its reflection or its sound as she stopped beside it. Jessica felt that the night was dominated by degrees of smallness in substances beneath their feet and hands, boulders or pea gravel or flaked rock or pea sand or sand itself or grit or dust or gossamer powder. The powder clogged nose filters and had to be blown out. Pea sand and pea gravel rolled on a hard surface and could spill the unwary, rock flakes cut and the omnipresent sand patches dragged against their feet. Now this was written in 1965, the moon landings were going to happen four years later. Arrakis does remind me a little bit of the inhospitable atmosphere and texture of the moon surface with the cutting glass-like moon dust and having to wear these big clunky spacesuits here. They're called still suits. We've got another interesting ecological idea. When Jessica's desperate to see a rainbow... Quote, there came over her then a longing for a rainbow in this place that would never see rain. I must suppress such longings, she thought. They're a weakness. I no longer can afford weaknesses. And then we have Jessica wanting this very watery planet. Quote, and this is Paul speaking. My mother's sick with longing for a planet she may never see. Where water falls from the sky and plants grow so thickly you cannot walk between them. Really makes you appreciate the earth that we have. 
And then the whole of the chapter beginning on page 280, which is family life of the royal crèche, it's full of the nature of the desert, the worms, the mice and the birds. Quote, something fell soundlessly past their eyes. There came a thin screech, a flapping of wings and a ghostly grey bird lifted away across the basin with a small dark shadow in its talons. So the idea of ecology and the animal life on Arrakis is a very interesting one, I think. Continuing this idea of ecology, we have a comment on sort of climate change. Kynes, the planetologist, thinks about the legacy of the planet. This is Kynes' father and his thoughts. Quote, the historical system of mutual pillage and extortion stops here on Arrakis. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard to those who come after. The physical qualities of a planet are written into its economic and political record. We have the record in front of us and our course is obvious. And Kynes thinks he could never stop lecturing. Lecturing, 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 always lecturing. The society is patriarchal. The Muad'Dib is important because it's, quote, an instructor of boys. And then we have comments like, Shani leapt like a gazelle. And Stilgar says to Jessica, quote, We must be getting back to the others, else my people may suspect I dally with you. Some already are jealous that my hands tasted your loveliness when we struggled last night in Tuono Basin. That'll be enough of that, Jessica snapped. No offence, Stilgar said, and his voice was mild. Women among us are not taken against their will, and with you, he shrugged, even that convention isn't required. There's a strong implication of patriarchal society within the Fremen. Carrying on the ideas, 60s drug culture was obviously a big influence on this. Listen to this description of Paul's trip that he has when he has the melange spice drug. Quote, awareness flowed into that timeless stratum where he could view time, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future, the winds of the past, the one-eyed vision of the future, all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time becoming space. And he is the Kivatz Hadarach. All throughout the book, we've got this medieval language, especially when Fade Rather addresses the Count and the Lady. Listen to this, quote... Fade rather bowed, his face dark with resentment. I'm sure everything will be as you wish, uncle, he nodded to Count Fenrid. Sir, to the lady, my lady. And he turned straight out of the hall, barely glancing at the knot of family miners near the double doors. And obviously throughout the book, we've got this feudal power, the emperor, the baron. They're fighting to assert authority, often with this physical, patriarchal power. Although the Bene Gesserit mothers also display a strong power, the weirding way and the power of the word. And that follows on with this whole religious idea throughout the novel, which is the Bene Gesserit. I was reading that this was quite an advanced novel in a way for dealing with religion, because a lot of sci-fi written at the time wanted to reject religion, but this, this is one of the first sci-fi novels that really bring religion to the fore. So they're just a few ideas. I'm sure there are many, many more so please let me know if there's any ideas in there that you want to convey to the rest of my listeners it'd be lovely to add that in the podcast i'd like to talk a little bit now about january's book an island by karen jennings published this year in 2021 if you're reading alongside i'll be reading up to the chapter beginning samuel rose from the couch that's 50 percent 
I'll be reading on my Kindle. I chose this book because I read a really interesting article about Karen Jennings and it was long listed for this year's Booker Prize. I also heard that the premise was quite interesting, A Lone Man on an Island. I don't know anything about Jennings apart from the fact that she's from South Africa. I'm going to read the first page and offer you my thoughts. The first day. It was the first time that an oil drum had washed up on the scattered pebbles of the island shore. Other items had arrived over the years, ragged shirts, bits of rope, cracked lids from plastic lunchboxes, braids of synthetic material made to resemble hair. There had been bodies too, as there was today. The length of it stretched out beside the drum, one hand reaching forward as though to indicate that they had made the journey together and did not now wish to be parted. Samuel saw the drum first through one of the small windows as he made his way down the inside of the lighthouse tower that morning. He had to walk with care. The stone steps were ancient, worn smooth, their valleyed centres ready to trip him up. He'd inserted metal handholds into those places where the cement had allowed, but the rest of the descent was done with arms outstretched, fingers brushing the rough sides in support. The drum was plastic, the blue of workers' overalls and remained in sight, bobbing in the flow during his hastening to the shore. The body he saw only once he arrived. He sidestepped it, walking a tight circle around the drum. It was fat as a president, without any visible cracks or punctures. He lifted it carefully. It was empty. The seal had held. Yet despite being light, the thing was unwieldy. It would not be possible with his gnarled hands to grip that smooth surface and carry it across the jagged pebbles over the boulders and then up along the sandy track through scrub and grasses to the headland where the cottage sat alongside the tower. Perhaps if he fetched a rope and tied the drum to his back, he could avoid using the ancient wooden barrel with its wheels that splintered and caught on the craggy beach, often overturning as a result of its own weight. Yes, carrying the drum on his back would be the best option. Afterwards, in the yard, he would hunt out the old hacksaw that lived amongst sacking and rotting planks. He would rub the rust from the blade, sharpen it as best he could, and saw the top of the drum, then place it in an outside corner of the cottage where the guttering overflowed so that it could catch rainwater for use in his vegetable garden. Samuel let the drum fall. It lurched on the uneven surface, thudding against the arm of the corpse. He had forgotten about that. He sighed. All day it would take him to dispose of the body. All day, first moving it, then the burial, which was impossible anyway on the rocky island, with its thin layer of sand. The only option was to cover it with stones, as he had done with others in the past. Yet it was such a large body, not in breadth but in its length, twice as long as the drum, as though the swell and ebb of the sea had mangled it into this unnatural, elongated form. What an interesting opening. I'm very excited about learning what's going to happen to this, this body that's been discovered. I love that analogy. It was fat as a president without any visible cracks or punctures. It was fat as a president. He's obviously got some political feelings about authority, perhaps. A very interesting opening. I'm very much looking forward to reading this. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. The email is bookshook at yahoo.com. Or you can leave a comment on the Bookshook YouTube channel. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. I look forward to discussing the first part of An Island by Karen Jennings at the next episode of Bookshook on the second Friday of January. That's the 14th of January, 2022. Happy New Year. See you then. <laughs>